This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hi, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. It's a wonderful day. Who do we have on the 3D pod today? Um, we have Dale Schwartz. And Dale was uh, well, an aerospace engineer. He's, a, he's from Purdue. He graduated from Purdue, such as some other people. Boy, the uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and aerospace engineering, worked in aerospace, later joined Zimmer, now Zimmer Biomet, um, essentially became uh well he worked at a pipeline orthopedics which is a startup and then uh, that got acquired by striker and then he ended up being the chief engineer at striker uh out of manufacturing and well dale is is i think the most experienced person in actually uh the manufacturing of uh specifically metal orthopedic implants in the world uh so so that's uh, very much an honor and he's super useful and really really nice so so it's a pleasure having you here today dale well, thank you, Joris. That's a that's a great introduction. I appreciate it very much. It's it's a pleasure to be here with you guys, and uh, happy to chat about additive manufacturing because it is uh, an exciting new industrial revolution. And mm-hmm. uh, heck yeah, I did start off in the aerospace industry. I tell people that I uh, kind of bookended my career by starting off way back when, when carbon fiber and Kevlar and things like that were relatively new, and we could make interesting aircraft structures from them and do things with them that you couldn't do with metals. And then I uh, moved into medical because medical was looking at some of the aerospace materials that were being used. Joined Zimmer in the early 90s and uh, yeah, worked in research and development there for many years until an opportunity came along to jump uh, with some friends into a startup on uh, additive manufacturing. And as you mentioned, we were acquired Eventually, by Stryker, we were actually acquired by our customer, which was Mako, the surgical robot company, and then Stryker, and uh, worked on a lot of additive projects uh, along the way. So I'm not sure I'm the expert in metal and orthopedics, but uh, happy to happy to share my knowledge and experience. Adele's kind. Adele's retired right now, but kind of retired. He's doing some consulting gigs and stuff Most on the retired. on the side there. Right? Yeah, I went out on LinkedIn and put myself down as uh, retired paragraph mostly or parenthesis mm-hmm. mostly paragraph or parenthesis so um yeah I, I i've been consulting i've been lucky enough to uh, uh be uh, on the advisory board for a couple of interesting companies in the uh, additive business um there's a lot of uh, activity in additive as you might guess and uh as i say it's it's a new industrial revolution and it's uh, it's, it's been fun to watch it evolve as quickly as it has, and it's going to be uh, even more fun to watch as it as it grows and changes uh, quickly in the next few years. Yeah, because like uh, the orthopedics additive is like, it's one of these overnight successes that took like 30 years, right? Uh, right. So, <laughs> I got started. Just, uh, it was it, super it, quick. <laughs> yep. Yeah. You know. But that's why, I, you know, when we talk about people, like they always say like, oh, yeah, we have some success in hearing aids and orthopedics, and then, oh, we're going to build on that and make lots of new applications. But yeah, if we're looking at, yeah, when is it? The beginning of the 90s, the mid-90s, some of the guys uh, were getting started on this stuff. And now it's becoming, we're getting into the, well, we're ramping up to, towards like millions of implants. So it took so long 
So, um, you know, what, what, in the time you've been involved, Dale, what's changed for, for Adiv, uh, Adiv and, 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 uh, and, and orthopedics? Well, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it, it, it is in some ways a long time, in some ways a very short time. I mean, if you think about it, Lima really got started uh, in Italy, what, 15 years ago now, maybe, you know, pushing 20 years of manufacturing implants. Um, Pipeline Orthopedics, our startup, we, we got our first machine in 2010 and, and our first product on the market in 2011. Uh, so it's it's been a few years. You know, really, it's, it's, it's the technology of the machines themselves that are changing. And we started off with a with a hundred watt laser, and now you're looking at machines that are, you know, one kilowatt lasers, and not just one laser, but two and four and ten. And if you look at the Vulcan Forms machine, maybe 150. Um, so it's, you know, that is changing fast, um, and we've learned a lot. Um, you know, one of the stories that I tell, and it's, you know, it's not a ding on the FDA, but one of our first 510K submissions for our first medical device. You know, the questions that came back came back from somebody who didn't have a lot of depth and education and experience with additive because nobody did at that point. Um, the question was, you know, we were working with titanium powder. Their question was, how do you know it's still titanium? Is We didn't invent alchemy. We didn't melt titanium <laughs> powder with a laser and turn it into something else. We just consolidated it, you know, in a different fashion. Um, now, of course, you know, the FDA provides you a, you know, 30 page document of guidance as to how to do additive manufactured medical devices. So it's really just been for everybody to learn and, uh, and for the technology to evolve. And, and that's why it's, you know, it's so much fun to, to try to keep up with it because there is so much uh, great stuff coming out and new, new technologies and new machines and new concepts. What was your first experience though with additive? Like how did you first happen upon it? Well, I, I mean, you go back to SLS and SLA machines. They came along and we started using them as a way to make prototypes for visualization. Surgeons, especially orthopedic surgeons, love to have their hands on something. And if you're asking them about the ergonomics of an instrument or uh, a, a, an implant concept, if you can give them a three-dimensional it. model right. that they can hold and look at, so we were doing SLA and SLS when it first uh, became available. The first, you know, concept for metals was probably uh, I, I can remember a visit from uh, from um, the um, electron beam folks talking about using that process instead of making castings, uh, and that's you know that's got to be what mid nineties, late nineties. Then really, yeah, the first real experience for, for me personally with metal was when I left Zimmer and, and we started the startup and we went out and bought our first uh, printer uh, and started trying to figure out how to make something useful with that. And that was uh, 2009, 2010. Did Ulf come visit you or was it somebody else? I'm, I'm sorry? <laughs> from from Arkham. Did Ulf come visit you or was it somebody else? Was it like Magnus or something Mag- like that? Magnus. <laughs> Magnus was there. <laughs> Magnus was there. <laughs> they really were one of the first machines. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, so it's been, a, it's been a crazy journey. But I think on the, on the one hand, on, on the machine front, we have gotten some improvement, but it's kind of 
it seems to have been very incremental for like, if we're looking from the nineties to let's say the beginning two thousands or something like that, it seemed like all the improvements are very incremental. After that, nothing much happened to a quad laser. And now all of a sudden we've got this 12 laser, whatever stuff. I mean, is that your experience as well? That it's been actually the machine development has gone really quite slow. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, it's probably hard to judge. Uh, you know, I think about what it must have been like in the aviation world and in the early 1900s. You know, you, you suddenly man can fly and now there's all sorts of different concepts. And, and uh, in some ways, it seems like it's slower than it should be. But on the other hand, um, we're really just beginning to figure out what is possible and, and, and really opening up new ideas. I mean, some of the gantry systems that can start printing big, big, big parts. I mean, it's, it's just amazing to think about what potentially uh, could come along. You know, looking at the way that EOS and Concept Laser got started in Germany, and then, of course, you know, GE comes along and makes a major investment, it, it's, uh, it's hard to know um, in the long run if, if that's good or bad and, and where things will go. Um, but I think it's, mm-hmm. you know, again, once the, the lasers became powerful enough to start melting metal, uh, it really just opened up all kinds of opportunities. And, and we're trying to take advantage of that. For me, the biggest issue is the fact that we started, the orthopedic world started printing parts that made sense, but they look like parts that have been machined and manufactured by other means for years and years and years. You look at an acetabular cup that's printed and it looks like one that might have been produced, you know, 20 years ago with just subtractive manufacturing and plasma spray or some other method for making a porous coating. Um, we have not yet seen the design revolution that additive will allow. And uh, I know that's coming. Yeah, because but one of the advantages, I mean, you mentioned plasma coating, like one of the really exciting things about orthopedics is we're cheaper, right? We're cheaper than the alternative with CNC and plasma coating, right? We're, we're actually making this, um, you know, less expensive than than those, maybe even by a significant margin, actually, uh, you know, factor seven, eight, cheaper than, than the traditional implants were, right? There is that potential. And there are certainly some parts that are being produced that are that are being produced much more cheaply than, than they they would have been otherwise. It's the it's the fact that you can print the solid part of the implant and the porous part of the implant instead of having to machine the, the solid part and then figure out how to attach a porous mm-hmm. coating or create a porous coating on that. Um, it's just like the idea of, of uh, part consolidation in aerospace that that really mm-hmm. hasn't you know, been a big driver in medical, but when it comes to like mm-hmm. instruments, there's that opportunity. Instead mm-hmm. of making something out of three and four and 17 parts, if you can print three and four pieces of the instrument together, you know, you don't have to go through the machining and the welding and the polishing. If you can mm-hmm. consolidate parts, then then that's a big opportunity to save money. And is that is that opportunity so large just because the cost of quality is so high because the operational excellence is so like demanding? Is then you know it's just eliminating steps the the best thing you can do or? I, well, it's a that's a big part of it. I mean, it, cost has not been that critical in medical for many 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 years. Uh, it's become much much more critical, and particularly with instruments, the you know the orthopedic companies don't generally sell the instruments. They don't make money on the instruments. They give the instruments away so that the surgeons can put in the implants. 
And so the drive to reduce costs on instruments is, is all about the, you know, the company's bottom line. Um, but again, there's the opportunity to make instruments differently and, and much lower cost uh, mm-hmm. by using additive. And then, so the one is the cost advantage, I think. And then the other thing, of course, is that the, the, we mentioned this a little bit, like the new things we can be doing. I mean, we are seeing things that are exciting. So one is the most obvious one, I think, is the modulus. We can change the modulus of this implant to match bone, whatever bone we want, right? Right. We're also seeing, I saw stuff like like improving wicking properties, improving kind of the blood throw for the implant. What are some of these like the special advantages that we could be doing that, that other technologies will find difficult? Right. Well, it's it's interesting you say you talk about modulus because uh, again, one of those aerospace materials that the orthopedic industry was interested in way back when was carbon fiber composite because the idea was that you could tailor the stiffness of the implant using carbon fiber composite in a way that you couldn't with titanium or uh, cobalt chrome steel. The opportunity to truly engineer the porous surface on implants or tailor the cross-sectional modulus of a device to better match the bone is, is there with additive. And that's one of the things that you know, needs to be explored further. When you look at an orthopedic device that's out there now that's been printed, the porous layer is pretty uniform. It has the same strut size, the same pore size from one spot to another spot. If you think about a, uh, an acetabular cup, there's the the, the equator and there's the dome and, and the porous material is all the same. And it may not be optimal for it to be all the same because the bone has to grow into and onto and through that porosity. And so perhaps the porosity at the dome should be different than the porosity at the equator in order for that device to, uh, to function the best and to integrate with bone the best. Um, but we have not really done much work along those lines of trying to truly optimize the porous coating. Again, we, we created porous coating with beads or plasma spray or, or chemical vapor deposition processes, and you kind of got what you got because you couldn't really design it. It was all right. about the process. Now with additive manufacturing, we design every strut. We design every pore. We potentially could make it very, very different. Um, And then, you know, as far as optimizing that bonion growth, bone cells, for whatever reason, uh, and I'm not a biology guy, so I can't begin to explain it, but bone cells like titanium. Um, They like a certain level of roughness. And for whatever, you know, serendipitously, the additive manufactured uh, porous structures seem to be really ideal for bone ingrowth and on growth. So that's, that's great. It's just that we've We've just repeated the designs that we've done, been doing for 50 years, and we're just manufacturing them better. So that's, that's where I'm looking for the, you know, the next really big step in orthopedic implants with additive is being able to build them and make them look very different than what we've, we've had before. The robots are doing similar things on the surgery side. You know, all of the cuts that a surgeon makes are done with flat instruments, you know, chisels and, 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 and saw blades. And, and so instead of cutting a flat surface, there's no reason you can't sculpt uh, a curved surface using the robot. And that then leads to the potential for an implant that's very differently designed and isn't a bunch of flat surfaces, but in fact is more uh, bone-like and more, more uh, 
uh, nature-like in its uh, its geometry, and and then in the way that it you know shares loading with the bone. Yeah, I think that second thing is really exciting. Also, the first thing to me, I would have expected that to go really much faster because to me, there's these textures, optimized textures, and functionalized textures for. Uh, everything, right? So we're not only talking like implants, but just like think a curved surface or a car or a sports car, F1. Right. There's an IP potential there as well because you can just maybe be able to come up with a better texture for like the bottom size and acetabular cut, cup and that would then demonstrably make uh, osseointegration better or something like that or osseoconduction, whatever you want to accomplish on that key element. And to me, that from an IP standpoint is so defensible. Just say, we've got the hex plus pattern and that's it. Our pattern is the best pattern out of everyone's pattern, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, it, the potential's there. You you have to appreciate, though, that it's not necessarily an easy thing to convince the FDA and other regulatory bodies <laughs> that what <laughs> you've created is, in fact, safe and effective. Uh, and if you're going to make a claim about, you know, our pattern is better than somebody else's pattern, you're talking about clinical trials, perhaps, uh, and the more data that you're collecting, the more patients that you're following, the longer you're following them, it's all costing money. So it becomes a question of, you know, do you really think that you can have some business advantage and, and make some marketing claims? Uh, and if that's what you want to do, how long is it going to take you to, to, to do all of that? Yeah. It's the same structure at the end of the day, right? Like it doesn't matter. It's additive. Any new version, you still have to go through the three to five year long process for implantation approval? Well, it, it just depends upon how different your device is. If, if okay. you have a device that's very, very similar to something that's been clinically successful, then you can go through this 510K process that says, here's all the testing we did to prove that our, our thing is safe and effective. And it's very, very similar to what's been successful in the past. So for most of the additive printed parts that are out on the market now, we were able to say, look, this thing looks very similar to what we've used before, what we've implanted before. We're just changing the manufacturing process. And there are definitely some advantages to the manufacturing process, but uh, you know, it's not dramatically different in how it functions in the human. So it, it gets approved fairly rel relatively easy. If you talk about creating something out of a new alloy, if you talk about creating a geometry that is radically different than what's been used for 50 years, then yeah, you're going to be looking at three to five to seven to 10 years of clinical studies before you're, you're going to be completely uh, free to, to market that device. Uh, which I think is, that's why it's quite remarkable that this market operates in a very weird way where now we're seeing a bunch of um, kind of startups out there. Like a lot of them have clearance, right? Uh, to make their devices. A lot of them are quite similar, I think, yep. uh, and which you've just explained why that is. I mean, they're, they're trying to run, like do a fine line between being new enough without it costing them too much uh, that they won't get to market. Right. So, and everybody seems to like want to claim a different part of the body kind of, it's kind of like, uh, kind of like, uh, you know, the board game risk where everybody's going to concentrate <laughs> in one area. Eventually these companies are going to get acquired, right? Or is that, is that how you see it as well? Because that's what happened to your company as well, the startup you were working for. And that's kind of seems like the normal progression of the things in this orthopedics market, right? Yeah. Or could when it be I joined Zimmer, you know, when I joined Zimmer in, in 1991, um, Biomet was a separate company, Right Medical was a separate company. There, there were a lot more 
companies uh, on sort of an equal footing in terms of size and, and market share. And today, it really is the big three. Um, you know, Zimmer Biomet, Stryker, and Depew are the big three. And then you've got right behind them, um, Smith and Nephew, uh, and, you know, Lima and Link and a lot of European companies that are second, third tier uh, in terms of, of size and market share. There has been a lot of mergers and acquisition over the years. And uh, that's true for, you know, the major joints like, like hip and knee and shoulder and elbow. The spine market is a lot more, uh, there's a lot more companies in the spine market, a lot of smaller companies in the spine market. Uh, and many of them have been acquired as well. Um, you know, Medtronic's got a big chunk of the spine business uh, from acquiring companies. Strikers bought their share of spine companies. Um, so, yeah, I, there's still plenty of opportunity for startups and to be acquired, and uh, that'll probably continue. There, there, there seems to be less of a interest in research and development with the big companies these days. They tend to want to buy uh, innovation instead of doing it themselves. Yeah, why pay for it when you can just purchase it? <laughs> you know? Yeah, mm. yeah. It uh, but, you know when I joined Zimmer, uh, if so, if if your device is not similar to something that's been around and been successful for years and years and years, there's another step you go through called an IDE with the with the FDA, and that is definitely a, a multi-year clinical trial when you have a new concept like the the idea of creating a hip stem out of carbon fiber composites. That was an IDE. So this, the, you know, a, a limited number of these were implanted in, in patients and those patients were followed for some period of time before you could mass produce um, the device. When I joined Zimmer, there were multiple IDE studies underway. When I left 20 years later, there were none. And, you know, most of the companies had shied away from doing those IDE studies and they were buying the people who had started up small companies to do those kinds of studies and develop those kinds of technologies. And it's, it's, is it, is it just cost and time that uh, uh, makes the larger cost, companies not want to approach it? Cost, time, risk. Um, you know, the, the medical device world is pretty litigious. We've all seen the commercials on TV for, you know, if you got a, a hip or a knee yeah. and it failed, we're, we'll be happy to, to sue for you. Um, so it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, there's definitely that risk. And so the bigger companies tend to become, more and more risk adverse. Yeah. But you mentioned Lima corporate a couple of times, like there's other companies in there's this Italian is another way of doing it. There's the Italian way of doing it. There's got companies like Adler Orto. I think there's a couple other ones, like four or five companies in Italy that all got started. There's like a cluster there. Right. Um, and they're relatively small companies. They're relatively innovative. They come up with new products all the time, but they're doing it and a much lower cost base is much, much smaller. Like they're infinitesimally small compared to like, you know, the strikers of this world. So there is a way of doing this, right? Sure. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And part of it is if you're going to work in a market where people aren't willing to pay as much for a hip or a knee implant, you better be more efficient at it and do it for a lower cost. If you're a U.S. company and you can expect to get a good return on your sales of your new technology, then you're a little less concerned about what's it actually going to cost to develop 
So if we're talking about like the new things that are going on, I mean, we mentioned then then the, the the coatings, the surface coatings, and we mentioned modulus. Are there other things you're also really excited about that you think is going to happen more often uh, going forward? Well, I, I certainly do think that the additive offers the opportunity to change a lot about how medical devices have been manufactured and where they've been manufactured. You know, the model in the past was if 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 I'm a big company and I'm going to introduce a new hip stem or a new knee, I'm going to produce tens of thousands of these things, put them in boxes, they're sterilized, they're ready to be implanted, and I'm going to have an inventory of those at every hospital in the country and every hospital around the world. And so the investment that a big company makes is, is huge to build all that stockpile and distribute that stockpile. If you start thinking about the potential to build just in time and to build locally instead of distributing from Warsaw, Indiana, um, you know, that changes the model. The other thing is the mass customization. Right now, if you go in and you need a hip or a knee, most companies have six or seven or eight sizes of something. It's like buying shoes. You know, you know what size you fit your foot. The surgeon will look at the, the x-ray or used to look at the x-ray, looks at the CT or the MRI now, and typically now 3D models fits the, the, best, the best size to the patient. And that works, you know, it works really well for the most part, but it may not be optimal. And if there are unique patient um, anatomies, you, you may struggle to fit the size 7 into that patient. So the potential for mass customization is there. There's obviously lots of customization go, or uh, personalized devices being printed now. People go in, get a CT scan, get an MRI. A part is printed specifically for their anatomy, especially if it's a uh, an oncology case and the surgeon knows he's going to be removing a large segment of bone. And so then the, the companies can print a, a custom device for that patient. But the idea that you know, the reason that we have six or seven sizes of something is because six or seven sizes were designed and then tested to prove to the company and to the FDA that it, they were safe and effective. But again, there's that limitation of maybe one of those sizes doesn't fit as well as it could or should. So if you could design and virtually test at least, you know, 40 sizes of a hip, and not have to make them all and have them in inventory on every shelf in every hospital in every country, then the opportunity is there to make the part that fits that patient better when you need it, where you need it, instead of you know the old model. So I think the business model will change dramatically. And that idea of having that inventory out there will, will change dramatically. And one of the upsides is that, you know, that inventory, those parts are sitting in a box that's been sterilized. There is a shelf date for those parts. They tend to get thrown away rather than re-sterilized. So you've now spent, you know, millions of so dollars. So how do they expire? <laughs> like, isn't it a piece of metal? Like, not to be... Yeah. Um... <laughs> no, 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 I understand. I know. The metal doesn't expire, certainly, but the concern is that the sterile packaging, the plastic and the seals are no longer uh, good. So the potential but, okay. they're no longer sterile is there. So most pack most product if you if it's on the shelf, if it's right. 
No, 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 that, that, that makes sense. I get it. Yeah, five five years or so. Um, and again, you know, if you want to extend that, you've got to prove to yourself and you've got to prove to the FDA that your that your uh, sterile uh, seals are good. Um, so yeah, if if and then, you know, again, if when you print out all these parts, or when you in the past when you manufacture all these parts, you obviously built a lot of parts in the middle of that bell curve of distribution of sizes. But then you've got a bunch that are on the small side and a bunch that are on the big side that you have to have because people come in all sizes and occasionally you need some small ones and occasionally need some big ones. So it's usually the small ones and the big ones that get thrown away because they, they sit unused. So if you can you know, eliminate all of that, all of that waste and all of that cost, it, it makes a big impact on the medical device world. I think it's exciting that we heard so much about patient-specific implants, right? And I think that you make a great point, and this is a wonderful point that not a lot of people have made, that you know, it's about their, their essentially like their buy-to-fly ratio, if you will, um, or it's about them. They're just like this, this initial investment of all these models and being able to produce now, now in a shorter time span, maybe even making it on demand or replenishing their supply and being able to use a lot less capital. And I think a lot of less people have talked about that as being a real driver for, for, for moving the industry forward. And I think it's, it's very exciting. Also this, you know, I think you're, you rightly said about the 40 sizes. We've, we talked about this before with Laura Lynn and other people where a lot of people were talking about patient specific, which yes, makes sense for certain cases. But for a lot of people, it just makes it makes everything just so much riskier, and it makes it just so much more complicated. And again, forty sizes made with a one week lead time would really completely change the industry. Whereas patient specific might be just really cost prohibitive or risky. Right. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, that's that's the exciting piece. Um, yeah, but I think yeah, everybody's been talking about like everyone will have their own implant; it'll be perfect, and there's less blood loss, and there's less, you know, uh, and there's faster recovery time. But I think we miss the bigger kind of manufacturing point, right? Which is being made with everyone talking about automotive is talking about, oh, for MRO, we have so many spare parts and now we can, you know, save on capital by making them on demand. But not a lot of people have been talking about that impact on medical, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I thought that was interesting. You made that point because I think it's, it's, uh, it could it could have a big a big uh, effect. And are you seeing also like, um, you know, I th- are you seeing also like, like exciting new geometries? Like we're talking about these wicking effects and stuff like that. I mean, are you seeing other stuff that's happening that the inside the implant where we're really trying to change the, the, like you kind of said it at the, uh, bone the, growth uh, and stuff of that. Nature. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. You know, changing the properties of this thing throughout the implant, uh, changing the, the structure of the thing without the implant could also have really exciting effects, right? Mechanically, for example, right? Yeah, I agree. Again, the you know the the reason that most implants uh, have a bo- uh, you know a bone ingrowth or on growth surface these days is because along the way of doing hip and knee replacements, surgeons recognized that getting the implant and the bone to work together was better was was more likely to you know to last the patient years and years and years. We used to use something called bone cement, poly- polymethylmethacrylate to kind of cement in or grout the, the implant did, in place. Did, did, and, didn't that stuff cause a heart attack, like in one in 10 patients or something? Well, it, it, so, so polymethylmethacrylate <laughs> um, is biocompatible. Um, there are issues with um, pressurization of the cement when it's put in. It can cause uh, embolisms um, just because you're squeezing a bunch of of goo into the intermedullary canal right. of the bone. 
Um, and there are some, you know, there's some chemistry there that isn't necessarily uh, compatible with every human being. Uh, so, you know, the, the tendency from from the oh, you know, mid '90s to today has been to get away from polymethylmethacrylate bone cement and go to in-growth, on-growth devices. And so it was this idea of having a metal design set of properties that would work best with the with the bone cells. And you know, is there work to be done on that front? Yes, definitely. Like I said, it. If you look at a hip implant today, it looks like most of the hip implants looked 20 years ago, uh, 40 years ago. If you look at a knee, they, they've looked that way for 50 years. You know, there's, there's opportunities to do things differently in design. There is the question in my mind, though, about just how much can you do with metal and plastic? You know, we're replacing bone and cartilage with metal and plastic, and eventually we've got to get to replacing bone and cartilage with bone and cartilage. And so the, the area that, uh, you know, I'm excited about too, although I don't know anything about it because I'm not a biology guy, is the bioprinting. And I, mm -hmm. you know, I try to pay attention to what people are, are talking about on that front because I, I really think it's, it's coming eventually. And it's like we always joked about orthopedic implants here in Warsaw, Indiana. It was like at some point the people who made you know, horse uh, equipment and buggies and such like that realized that their their day was done because they had this fancy thing called the the horseless carriage. You know, the the people that carve metal and plastic and and use that as implants, the, those days are numbered. It's probably not in my lifetime, but at some point we have to start replacing bone and cartilage with bone and cartilage. Like, because first off, a lot of the hydroxypatite and all these kind of bone like materials I've seen. The performance is just not there, right? You're getting something that's kind of like a, uh, you know, the kind of crumbles on impact kind of thing. So it is like um, really difficult. And then if we look at uh, cartilage, that is an incredibly complicated material to do. I yes. mean, that's just um, that's just like a, you know, super like complex composite, like as a like kind of multi-composite material. I think actually, right? Uh, that's just incredibly difficult to replicate. I mean, you know, and but the opportunity is is. Like, especially on cartilage, it's like, you know, we're talking about over a billion people will have problems with their cartilage and they'll be in the rich part of the world and then we'll have these problems for multiple decades. So the, the, the financial opportunity is there. And so do you think that, 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 you know, what are the challenges there? Just just the production technology, implementing these technologies or what? Or implementing yeah, I, them. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, again, I, I, you know, I'm out of my uh, area of expertise when it comes to keeping uh, cells alive and, and and happy, um, but that seems to be the challenge of of getting the right cells in the right place and making them stay in the right place and be healthy and and uh, and propagate. Um, you know, there's a number of there have been over the years a number of trials of you know putting in uh, cartilage plugs and re sort of retreading uh, our joints instead of replacing our joints. And one of the biggest challenges is just getting those cells to stay where you want them to stay and do what you want them to do, uh, i.e., you know, differentiate themselves into bone or cartilage or, or whatever it might be. So, so printing some kind of a scaffold makes sense. Printing something that gives them some mechanical structure and some strength 
for at least a little while makes sense. As you say, some of these materials, um, you know, they're they're pretty pretty brittle, pretty fragile, pretty uh, uh, easily um, removed by the body. Uh, so it, there, you know, there needs to be this immediate strength for a period of time, and then it you know, goes away. It's like a, a bone, you know, fracture. You want to be able to keep the two pieces of bone well. Uh, you know, in, in proximity and, and, and make them heal and grow, but you don't want to build uh, a structure that takes the strength away from the bone. Um, so you've got you've to walk that fine line of healing versus replacing. Um, and that's, you know, that, that'll come. There's no question. That'll come. We'll be printing some sort of matrix of materials that will have cells grown in them or, or on put onto them and then they'll take over and and the material that we the artificial stuff that we've printed will resorb um no i told you, but but right now we're seeing well right now the technology we are talking about is powder bed fusion like e-beam lpbf these are the main right. technologies used in, in in this kind of thing and has that like what do you see that like because there's still limitations right there's limitations on the one hand i see two main things and that's one is well three is one is like process control QA, right? Uh, quality assurance, let's say. And the other one is to me, conveyancing and automation. And the third thing is just yield generally, right? I mean, I think, where would you say the limitations of powder fusion? Where would you think it's like, kind of like, you know, where are we getting stuck? Let's say. Right. Well, yeah, I, you know, the, the, the big concern is uh, fusion defects and uh, how do you make sure that the uh, thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of layers that you've just printed, uh, all were perfect. Uh, so the you know real-time monitoring of the melting process is something that we have to work on. Um, there are some you know some cool technologies available and people working on that because that is the question. You know you want to try to run these machines in kind of a lights-out environment, which means you don't have some human being watching every layer and you can't have a human being watching every layer. So you got to make sure that the machine is keeping track of itself. That's probably the biggest quality issue. Um, you don't want to have to, you know, you'd prefer not to have to x-ray or CT every part to make sure that it's good. Uh, so there's you know, a lot of hard work done to validate the process. You know, in terms of the limitation of size with the powder bed, I mean, it'll be a question for the strikers and the zimmers and the depews of the world to decide if they want to replace their hundred printing machines with, you know, one that's capable of doing the same thing. Um, In in a lot of ways, it's like, uh, you know, an airline buying either Airbus or Boeing and and now they've got to kind of stick with it because that's the technology that they know and they understand and, and they know how to do the maintenance on, et cetera. But, you know, as the machines evolve and they do get bigger, does it, make economic sense to make that change. There's one thing that's related to this that really excites me, actually, or really bothers me, depending on what mood I'm in. Like, on the one hand, so imagine I had, I've asked a bunch of people this, like, imagine I had an M270 at one point. I did all my, uh, I did all of my, uh, you know, my approvals, I, I, I'm making my implants, everything's going wonderfully, right? Of course, M270, it's ancient machine. All of a sudden, the M290 comes along. <laughs> yeah, okay, it's faster, right? Yeah, but not a lot. Now all of a sudden we've got M400s, uh, that kind of thing. We've got a lot more yield. 
we've actually got we can do interesting part properties. We can maybe even improve the part now, right? Right. Uh, we've got a odd laser and stuff. So at what point would I, as an implant manufacturer, change my machine, or am I never going to change my machine? Yeah, that's that's the challenge. Um, you know, I'm old enough to remember what it was like when uh, personal computers became available, and it was always that question of, do you go out and buy the thing? that you know will be obsolete by the time you get it home and plug it in and start using it? Or do you wait for the next best thing, which means you continue to wait forever and you never have a computer in your house? That's really the, the point we're, we're at now. And it, it does get very complicated for a big company that's made a big investment in a bunch of equipment because when you do make a change to the manufacturing process or to the equipment, you really do have to think about is this a significant enough change to go back through the FDA or whatever regulatory body you're dealing with to go back through their, their approval process? And all of, that, all of that change costs money and all of that change takes time. And so it becomes a question of, does the new machine offer us enough advantage to justify the cost of making the change? Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's, you know, it's, again, it's just the nature of the industry right now, the, the additive industry, that it's, it's r- relatively new in the big grand scheme of things, and it's changing very, very fast. And so, um, you know, it may take another 10 or 15 years for it to all sort of settle down to kind of a steady state, and uh, we'll see what, you know, what changes come. Yeah, exactly. Because I, I had a similar project on on really crazily similar. It's a museum. I did a project for a museum worker in the museum, and they were trying to preserve three D printed artwork. Oh, and the same thing is we had the problem. The, the same thing is that if the algorithms change, or the file gets updated, or the the the, the firmware, the machine gets updated, we end up having a different object. Right. <laughs> so we have a problem. We would want to replace this object. At one point, it would look different than when the artist intended it. And it, it was just, it just became this conundrum, like, what do we do? And what all of a sudden the artwork is the extra kind of element is like, what is the artwork? Is it the file or the expression as intended to the artist on that day? And I just started thinking about it back then and also thinking about like for aerospace and for, for orthopedics, it's just, it's just this, you can't really, um, I haven't been able to come up with a solution for this because it's just, you kind of end up getting stuck, you know? Right. Um, no, no. And then, but, and then what if, like you mentioned that in process monitoring, I think that's, you know, the, the process is just uh, too much of a black box. So, you know, this whole spatter, I, I try to explain like two things, the, the spatter of the recoder bump, they always come up in the, the 3d pod as well. Yeah. You know, it's just, it, you know, you can't explain that to like a machining person. They think you're crazy. <laughs> you <know? laughs> like what? Oh, these parts, they kind of get together. Like what parts? Well, we don't really know when, and then they all get to, they clump together and then they spatter all over the place. You're like, what? Yeah. It just seems really kind of childish, you know? Um, so, you know, and there's two ways, like we could do better in-process monitoring and also better QA or both of them together. Do you think it's like a combined solution that's really like the, the way to go or? Oh, I think so. I think so. I mean, I, you know, the, you always have to have a little bit of faith. You've got to have done a really good process validation uh, process, you know, protocol and, and, uh, You've got to have faith that you, that you really truly do understand, you know, what the various levers and, and dials do to the process. Um, 
you know, it's it's not one of those things you plug the machine in, you start making parts immediately, and every part is is guaranteed to be good. You really have to to prove it to yourself, and then yeah, you could uh, destroy uh, every part to uh, see inside and evaluate the chemistry and and look at the metallurgy and all that. But obviously, you can't ship any products and make any money if you do that. So you've got to have some non-destructive testing uh, capability, be it X-ray or CT. Uh, I think it would be nice if we saw some improvements in CT, so it didn't take quite so long to uh, mm-hmm. to to image a uh, you know a titanium part. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure that'll come. Um, no, but again, it's it's all about really truly understanding the process parameters and and uh, understanding those limits of the parameters and how much variation there will be and mm-hmm. knowing or com- being confident that if something does go out of uh, calibration or out of limits that, that you'll you'll catch it yeah no that, that, totally totally completely agree but then on the side we're seeing people that are now looking at software and saying, ah, we can do kind of dynamic skywriting kind of stuff. We can change the laser spot size and stuff. Yep. And we're seeing people have multiple lasers. And then I'm thinking, wait, wait, wait a minute. We were just able to understand these 32 parameters. <laughs> right? And now you're going to make like 200. And that, that to me, at one point, it gets to a point where we won't be able to, 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 to deal all the, with all this data. And it'll just get much more complicated. Well, yeah, it does. It gets very complicated. If you think about a design of experiments with, you know, just two or three or four factors, it, it begins to uh, grow exponentially and you multiply however many other parameters may or may not matter. I, I, again, I, you know, I, I encourage people to get a really good understanding of what does and doesn't matter. You know, the, the, the color of the underwear, the operator uh, probably doesn't impact the results of the print job. Um, but the laser power does the oxygen level in the powder does the, you know, maybe the humidity in the room does maybe the oxygen content in the argon gas does, you know, what really matters and, and what really doesn't. And then it's again, do good engineering and good science to do a bunch of experiments to prove that you do or don't understand the, you know, the, the limits of the parameters and, uh, and, and how they do or don't impact the mechanical performance of the part. Sounds really sensible advice. Thank you so much, Dale, for being with us today. Uh, thank you so it's much like for joining us today. Get paid what they get paid, right? <laughs> exactly. Dude. I agree. I agree. Completely agree. <laughs> I think we all agree on that. Yeah. <laughs> all right, uh, and thank you as well, Max, for being here today. No, thank you. And thank you for listening. Uh, my name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the Three D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.